0: welcome everyone um i don't think it's a crime to get started 20 seconds early welcome to our weekly philosophy of education chat we are going to skip next week because a number of us are traveling and conferencing but in the coming month we're going to have kelly smith from prenda the ceo and founder of prenda a really cool homeschool charter school organization Yusuf Ahmad of the MIT Media Lab and many, many other projects. He's done some great work with the South African government, with Lego, really pedagogically interesting. And also Brian Kaplan, the author of The Case Against Education, I think is what his book is called. So lots of good stuff coming up. But tonight, our topic is discussions, the pedagogy of discussions. And I'm really excited to have Bobby McDonald, who I just met a week or two ago, the founder of Parley. Welcome, Bobby. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and Parlay kind of how you found yourself in the field of education?
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't come by it through the traditional route. I've never been a teacher. But I guess for those who don't know, Parlay is a discussion tool, basically. It's a platform that teachers use to facilitate discussions in the classroom, mostly high school and middle school teachers, although some higher ed and some elementary school teachers who are pretty adventurous – The way that we came or I came to sort of found Parlay, it's really sort of key parts of my education growing up, certain moments in time that I really remember. The first and most salient is when I was in grade seven, we were lucky enough to have laptops at our school quite early. Our school was pretty experimental in that way. And my grade seven science teacher, Mrs. O'Hare, had us write blog posts basically about the ethics and philosophy and politics of stem cells. It was a hot topic at the time, stem cell research and the ethics of it. And so we wrote these blog posts and posted it on our email client. And then we went in and responded to each other's posts. And I was just totally fascinated by the whole process, just sort of integrating so many different, you know, disciplines and thinking about how, you know, what we were learning in science could connect to the events and ideas shaping our world. So that was sort of like the first time that I ever did something akin to parlay in school. And then sort of growing up, I had a close family friend or one of my best friend's dad who used to take us on long road trips and he would print out New York Times articles and he would hand them out to me and a couple friends in the car and he would make us sort of read the article in silence for 20 or 30 minutes. And then we would have to have basically like an in-car Socratic seminar <laughs> wherever That's we were going. That's amazing. It was, Wait, who yeah, it was who, who this? This was your family yeah. friend. Yeah, a close family friend, guy named Frank Goynich. And to this day we still uh, just last weekend actually I was up at Chalet visiting the family and you know we had conversations about these kinds of conversations till two, three in the morning. So yeah, he really sort of shaped helped shape my sort of intellectual curiosity as a kid. Then I went to university and spent some time, studied business and arts at university, so liberal arts and business. And I remember just sitting in class one day, I think it was second year, it was an international business class. And there was so much going on in the world of international business. Obviously, there's a constant news cycle of these kinds of things. And I'm surrounded by really smart people. I was at McGill at the time in in Montreal, Canada, and we were all sitting there. And we were being lectured to, and it wasn't a particularly inspiring lecture. Now, there's nothing against a great lecture. In fact, I think they're a critical part of learning. But I just felt like there was something missing like a lack of dialogue, a lack of conversation about what we were learning in class and the events and ideas shaping our world, and ultimately just sort of being able to learn in a much more sort of collaborative and, and student driven manner. So, all of these things, you know, these formative experiences, things that stuck out in my mind really like cemented in me, the importance of discussion. And then the other thing I'll say is I grew up in a big Italian family. My mom comes from a family of seven brothers and sisters. And so we would have big family parties with 30, 40, 50, 60 people all around a big long table. So while that might not have been always the most highbrow discussion, conversation and lively conversation was always sort of like a cornerstone of my life. Then as I went through school, I spent some time living and studying in China. I spent a lot of time as well sort of taking as many liberal arts courses as I could, philosophy, literature, anything I could while still squeaking out with the business degree. And as I went through that process, I really started to realize that the free and open exchange of ideas and understanding that conflicting doctrines share the truth between them as John Stuart Mill said, those are like a bedrock of our civilization, whether you're talking about politics obviously or, you know, the boardroom or the family dinner table the scientific process, wherever it is, that truth-seeking dialogue is a foundational principle of, of our civilization. And I felt like we were really losing touch with it. So as I got older and I studied and learned more, my commitment to this idea that would eventually become Parlay became one that was much more sort of, you know, much deeper, I would say, and, and philosophical, but also still tied to my personal experience growing up in education and, and otherwise. Then I spent some time working after school in finance wasn't for me. Then I finally found my way working in a B2B enterprise software company. And when I was working there, I worked at a role called a solutions engineer. And the real focus of that was just to try and learn as much as I could about building products and about selling or marketing or you know, communicating the value of a solution to an audience. And all of this was geared towards eventually starting Parlay, which I did part-time in 2016. And then I finally sort of started being a full-time at the beginning of 2017, and it's been quite a journey ever since. That's awesome. And
0: so, so Parlay is a tool that helps teachers run discussions. Is that the idea? Yep, correct. And I mean, I'm assuming that because you're making this tool and because you found a market for this tool and because you're motivated to help people with this, that you see there being kind of blockers to discussions going well or teachers that, that are kind of intimidated by running discussions or like... What problem is it solving in terms of like, what's difficult about running a discussion and what are you helping with?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question and something we had to figure out (laughs) really early on. So there's a few critical things that we've discovered in our research that make discussions very difficult. The first one is that most teachers and students simply aren't used to running or being a part of a student-driven learning environment where the responsibility of the ideas creating or generating the ideas, asking the questions, building on challenging, questioning each other's ideas is really the student's responsibility. And so for teachers who more often than not, not every teacher, of course, and not all the time, teachers are mostly trained and or feel comfortable in a more didactic learning environment, which, as I said earlier, has its merits and has its place for sure. But relinquishing control over the flow of information and the flow of the learning process to students is something that's challenging for teachers. And the same is true for students. It's a lot of responsibility, especially for kids who grow up in an environment that doesn't necessarily encourage that. So that transition is difficult. And along with that are the protocols of discussion. There are many different types of discussions there are Socratic seminars, there are spider web discussions, there are Harkness tables, a bunch of different ways to run an effective student-driven discussion. And teachers don't always know what those protocols are. And it takes a lot of time to learn them. And it takes a lot of time to sort of work your way through the awkward silences and getting the class to the point where, you know, after three or four somewhat awkward discussions, they're sort of off to the races and moving and comfortable with with that kind of learning environment. So that would be the first problem I would say that we're, we're seeking to, to address. The second one is inclusivity, for lack of a better term. A few kids will often dominate the conversation. This is true basically in all aspects of life. And so for us, you know, what we want is we want every student to at least have a voice. It's not to say that they're all going to participate perfectly equally, but you want to create an environment where The quiet students who might have really good ideas but not the confidence to interject into a fast paced conversation have the opportunity to do that. And on the flip side, the students who tend to dominate the conversation and love to hear themselves speak are cognizant of or become aware of the fact that they're dominating the conversation. And you want to make sure that all kids are developing the quote unquote skills and dispositions required or that are developed through a really great student driven discussion. And then the third problem is basically measurability, accessibility, however you want to frame that. What gets measured gets managed, of course. And for teachers, tracking who participated, the nature of that participation and that engagement and how that changes over time at the individual level and at the collective level is very difficult. And as a consequence, it's hard to provide meaningful feedback to students on a recurring basis. And it's hard to assess if you want to go so far as to assess the discussion, which are critical pieces to the puzzle. You need that data so you can understand... For example, if you're the student that talks 80% of the time, you need data to show you that. You need proof that you talk way more than everyone else so that the next time maybe you can you know relinquish the floor a little bit or whatever the case
0: you know maybe. That's awesome. So there's a lot to talk about there. And I, I really want to get into the discussion protocols and inclusivity. And I really want to hear what you have to say. I actually like, I mean, I know about, lot, I've run probably, I don't know, certainly hundreds, maybe thousands of seminar discussions over the course of my teaching career. And a lot of this is still, and I'm a pedagogue, but like, that's in my job title. and like <laughs> I'm responsible for this. And, and a lot of this is still pretty implicit to me when it comes to kind of talking about it and teaching it to others. So I want to dig in. But before that, just the first thing that you said about why discussions are difficult was about it being a student-driven environment rather than a more didactic environment. And you also said a couple of times, like, look, nothing's wrong with a great lecture. Nothing's wrong with a didactic learning environment. Can you maybe just say a little bit about, like, I mean, there are People out there who are just like skeptical of discussions, or who don't think that they're that big of a deal. Like, what is the advantage of seminar discussions, Socratic discussions—the kind of thing that um, that you're supporting with Parlay? Like, when would you use them, and, and why? Hmm. That's
1: a very good question. I think the first thing is it depends on the kind of discussion that you want to run. So, you and I had this conversation when we were in San Diego, and you were pushing me on this a lot. And Annalise and I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about it afterwards and i think it depends on the goal of, of the conversation so for example if you want to create a discussion environment that's more let's say convergent where there's a few specific ideas as a teacher that you want or as a you know a guide in the discussion that you want students to get to there's a couple key themes in the novel or core ideas that you want them to get to if that's the kind of discussion that that you're running then i think it's really critical to A, make sure that there's a foundation of knowledge established before you go into the discussion. I think the reason why a number of people might be skeptical of discussions is because if kids don't have that foundational knowledge, if they haven't read the text or they haven't watched the lecture, whatever it is, they don't have that knowledge, then they're not really, they're grasping at straws a lot of the time and there's not really a lot of things, a lot of information, knowledge for them to access in that RAM memory, like in the moment. And I think that's really critical that they have that so that the discussion is meaningful and substantive. So I think that this kind of discussion should come probably with a significant amount of sort of prerequisite knowledge. And I would say that it's probably up to the teacher to decide how much how much is necessary and, and at what point, you know, in a unit that teachers would, for example, do a discussion. So one of the things that we've seen a lot of teachers who actually use Parlay have been really successful at is... They use discussions sort of as like fence posts. So if you think about like a unit, let's say in traditional sort of teaching environment where or teaching and learning environment where kids are learning the contents in the ways that they need to over, let's say, a four or six week period, then maybe at the beginning of the unit, you might have a discussion. And that might be one that's more exploratory, where it's more about ideation and more about sort of just opening up some of the big themes working with kids pre-existing knowledge before maybe they even do do any of the sort of the actual learning and then at the end you might again another fence post you might put that down and that's where maybe you go significantly deeper or connect what they just learned with some of the other themes from the course that have been you know that are designed to flow through all the content and then in terms of why would you use discussions a number of reasons. One, it teaches kids to communicate, teaches on the fly, teaches them to articulate their ideas, whether it's a written discussion or a verbal discussion, articulate their ideas in a semi-formal environment. So it's not as formal as, let's say, doing a speech because it tends to be more ad hoc, but it encourages them to communicate actively in sort of intellectual discourse, which You know, hopefully they'll need throughout their academic careers, but also as they get into the workplace, let's say they're sitting in a boardroom meeting or trying to, you know, have a difficult conversation with someone and they're trying to work towards a resolution. So I think that's really critical. Also, I think learning about the perspectives of others, again, depending on the nature of the conversation, each person is going to come to the table with a different set of life experiences with a different amount of background knowledge and just with a whole different sort of frame or worldview. And I think it's really critical, especially if you're talking about issues, where there's lots of shades of gray in human experience, which tends to be, let's say, the humanities, then it's really important that kids learn early that there are going to be different perspectives around the table, and that people are going to disagree with you, and that's okay. And that you may disagree with them, and that's okay as well. And that as that process unfolds, there's like a synthesis element that goes on. And I would argue that students become, you know, much deeper, more integrative thinkers when they're hearing and having to integrate those different perspectives. And when they're learning to disagree with others in real time and be disagreed with
0: in real time. So some of the reasons I I could keep going on. I'm reticent
1: to drone on. This is, no,
0: this is, this is really good. I mean, yeah. I mean, I especially like what you said. I mean, there's a lot that I found interesting, but Like, there's different purposes kind of at different points in the learning process for discussions. Discussions aren't a kind of cookie cutter tool that you like use all the time or use for everything. You can use them to explore, you can use them to connect, you can use them to teach kind of social skills and disagreement. This idea I've been looking into the history of education with a few different people, and this notion of speaking, of kind of practice in ad hoc speaking, which in different contexts at different times has been called like rhetoric or statesmanship or leadership. Yes. It's really like, I mean, in history, it's been very, very—it's been a huge part of education. Like, this was a big, big part of education in ancient Greece, and it's not because the culture was pre-literacy. Um, this was true even as the culture got more literate. It was because like getting in front of people and holding your own and making an argument and being inspiring. This is like, this is what is expected of you as a citizen, and it's part of participating in life. And just practicing that is something that I think very few students get that much opportunity to do. And then, yeah, I mean, the foundation of knowledge should we talked about. I think everybody has been in bad discussions. I've run <laughs> bad discussions. So, you know, it's not a sin to kind of <laughs> run or be in a bad discussion. Yeah. But it, it is often the case that, like, you'll find yourself in a discussion and it's like, only a couple people are interested. Or it's like a bull session or the students don't really know what they're talking about. Or you'll get feedback. Like, I remember getting feedback on some of my student evaluations when I was early on in teaching that was like, the discussions are really fun, but I really just want to know what Matt thinks. Like, yes, and, and I think that there's this idea that discussions and seminars are like it's the blind leading the blind, the animals are in charge of the zoo. It's like you've got a bunch of students who are kind of like who don't know what they're talking about, asking questions of each other and pushing each other. And I, I mean, that's just I think it's like that's a problematic discussion that's not characteristic of really any of this discussion protocol, Socratic or Harkness or, or any of these mm-hmm. things. Yeah, um, and, and being clear on that is something that I'm passionate about. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. There's been an, I can't count the number of discussions that I've like sat in on where I'm like, if the teacher would just like explain something for 10 minutes, then the discussion could happen. And until that happens, the discussion is useless, but there's like a kind of ideological commitment to like not doing that. And that can be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, if you're too rigid or ideological
1: on, on anything, then it tends to break down certainly the edges of the distribution, and I think there's a balance to be struck because you want kids to sit through the awkward silence. You can't rescue them every time. But at the same time, if no one knows what they're talking about or there's not a good foundation of knowledge, as you were saying, and it is the blind leading the blind, then maybe that's the teacher's job to say, OK, we're going to pull back. We're going to press pause here and I'm going to explain a few more things. Maybe it takes 10 minutes. Maybe it takes five. Maybe it takes 20. And then maybe at that point, you kind of get the discussion going again. So there's it's definitely a skill above and beyond
0: you know like you said the established protocols that takes time to learn for yeah. both students yeah yeah i mean the awkward silences is such a good example i mean one of the most common pieces of advice that you get as a teacher who is running discussions is like the silences are more awkward for your students than they are for you just like embrace that and then eventually somebody's going to speak up and like you know there's a bunch of other things like what feels like a 60 second silence is probably more like a 10 second silence and But that is like even that that has a context. Like there are awkward silences where like your students don't know what to say and they don't know how to ask you. They don't know how to raise that with you. They don't know how to say like I don't understand the question, Matt or Bobby or like what you know. Like can you reframe it or is this what you're asking? And so you just kind of end up sitting and wasting time and and it's Mm -hmm. not great for anyone. How did you um, handle that? That issue of silences. I mean, I use them a lot now, and I. If there's a question in my mind as to whether or not the students kind of understand where I'm coming from or understand the issue that we're discussing in a kind of basic enough way to ask about it, I will rephrase the question in kind of different ways, or I'll take the question up to a meta level. Like, am I making sense with this question? But I'm pretty comfortable with awkward silences. I mean, I do think I do use them quite a bit in my teaching, and this is horrific as that sounds. So maybe you can talk a little bit about one of the protocols that you mentioned, Socratic, Harkness, just like, what are these discussion protocols that teachers come to kind of master and internalize? And and you can talk about how it helps with them too. But just like, just as a first pass, like, what does it mean to kind of engage in a Socratic dialogue or one of these other kinds of discussion? Yeah, I'll
1: start with Harkness because it's the one that I think we've studied the most. Harkness is a tool or is a protocol, excuse me, that started at St. Philip's Academy Exeter, I believe. The super ritzy private school in the Northeast. And basically, they have these gigantic wood tables, and everyone sits around the table. And it's incredibly student driven, but the focus from the teacher's perspective as the students go through, and the students are meant to propose questions, the students are actually meant to come up with questions ahead of time. So, one or two students, or the whole class, might be responsible for actually bringing questions to the class or to submitting them to the teacher ahead of time and then the teacher will use those questions they'll sequence them in a way that they think makes sense and pick the ones or let the kids vote on on the ones they actually want to explore and then those questions will just become the frame or the outline of the conversation and they'll just go through them basically in order and obviously as the conversation goes in one direction then you can kind of bring it back as the teacher, but it then it becomes a very sort of student driven discussion. And what the teacher does as the discussion unfolds is they have a little map on their, you know, on a piece of paper. And if Johnny responds to Elizabeth, they sort of just draw a line between Johnny and Elizabeth and they go back and forth and they track the discussion. And then there are certain things that they're looking for in a Harkness table. For example, they're looking for students to use evidence to support their ideas. And if they do, then Johnny will get a little tally point for using evidence or building on someone's idea or, you know, advancing the conversation in some way, or it could be something negative like was being disruptive or, you know, was ad hominem attack or whatever it is. And so it's a way to track the flow of the conversation in this little Harkness sort of bubble chart that they create in the end, and then to track individual students' participation and and looking for specific skills. So there's clearly defined skills that they're looking for in that, and then the teacher's actively tracking and measuring student engagement, individual student participation with those skills. And some of the, if you go to Exeter or Andover, Every single classroom is a Harkness table, basically. Now they have the luxury of, you know, 12 to 15 kids in a class, which makes that possible. It's much more difficult, obviously, in public school with 30, 35 kids in the class. But they do it in math class and science class. And it really is predominant in the pedagogical framework, which, you know, when if and when the students go to college, you know, often those kinds of students will go to Ivy Leagues or the small liberal arts colleges. That's the kind of learning they'll be doing there, too. So it's really preparing them for that as well. So that's the Harkness table. And then the Socratic seminar is, I think, comparable, but it's mostly you probably know more about it than I do, in all honesty, but it's mostly focused on asking questions and students and or the teacher are just strictly asking questions to others, trying to push and challenge statements and arrive at the truth.
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. The kind of like pure form of the Socratic method, mm-hmm. the role of the educator is to ask, is to kind of like, it's not context setting, it's it's question asking and kind of yes. question clarifying. And I like what you said about hartness too. So I think, I mean, I think in both Socratic, which is pretty well elaborated by a number of people have kind of elaborated the practice, like Mortimer Adler, Michael Strong, there's a kind of literature on how to do this. And what you said about hartness which is like a kind of institutional history and it's spread and it's related to Oxford conferencing and and a whole tradition there. A big, big part of it, which relates to something that you said about at the very beginning about like the ethics of disagreement and John Stuart Mill and the free and open exchange of ideas, is like what is being pedagogically embedded via discussions are actually like epistemic standards or standards of rationality. There's, it's like, I mean, the thing that you said where it's like, are you using evidence from the text? Are you attacking others with ad hominem? Are you actually listening to what other people are saying? There's a whole set of kind of rational practices that all of these types of discussion make a big deal out of. Make a big deal out of. I'm just wondering if you wanted to say a little bit more about that, that concept, and like, is that fundamental to discussions and kind of what you're doing? And if so, like, what is it? And can you say a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, really good question. I think it's absolutely critical to teach. Students about simply building and evaluating arguments and those foundational principles of, of reason. I think it's really important because it lies basically at the center of decision-making as you grow up and become an adult. And I think it's really critical, whether you're, if you're wandering into a voting booth, that you've heard the arguments from both sides. And that you've been able to discern when someone's you know trying to pull the wool over your eyes, for example, or if you're making an important business decision, let's say where to allocate capital towards x, y or z initiative, or you are having a disagreement with your spouse, and temperatures are running high, let's say, and there's a you know I like to think of it as sort of like between the neocortex and the amygdala, the amygdala is that thing that's governing all a lot of your Unconscious action, but you know exercising your neocortex I think is is critical, and that includes listening and integrating new ideas and perspectives and hearing counter arguments and building your own arguments and I think that you know outside of passing a standardized test or getting through college or getting into college or whatever it is, I think that these are the skills that make humans fundamentally unique. And these are the skills that we're going to need as individuals in order to make good cogent decisions. And ultimately, I would say as well, after the decision is made, I think discussion really teaches reflection. You say something, you put that idea into the arena. As soon as you put it in there, someone else comes in and picks it apart. That's an opportunity for reflection and to increase self-awareness. And I think that's so critical as well just going into the world to be able to be okay with being wrong. And it's okay to be wrong as long as you're in the arena with the right intentions. And that is to ultimately be right. And that's not to win the argument, but it's to arrive at an understanding of the world that is as true as possible. And to understand that that process is always evolving and that you'll never actually get there, especially when it comes to you know, the very messy affairs of human beings. So, yeah, I think these things are absolutely fundamental at the civilizational level. We all need to know how to do these things so we can get along and cooperate and work through problems and, you know, pursue truth. And then at the individual
0: level, I think they're critical as well. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, if you think about what it takes to communicate, to argue, to kind of come to the truth, I mean, engagement with others, like, I don't think that it's you can both overstate and understate the case for like the role of others in that process. Like it's like yeah, like you can kind of sit there on a desert island and like study and run experiments and come up with your own truth like you have a direct relationship to reality. And that's important and that's the basis of of really all human thinking and theorizing is that each person has that independent access to reality. Yeah, but it's also the case that like People challenge your ideas. People have different ideas that you didn't think of, that there's conflict, like both at the level of argument and ideas, but also at the level of goals and preferences yes. and values if you're working together. And so if you think about how do you learn those things, like how do you learn to kind of like, I mean, one of the things that you just said was like, you don't want to be right. Like you want your ideas to be true. Mm-hmm. Like if the purpose of education is to help students adopt these mindsets, how do you do it? And I mean, it's hard for me to come up with an adequate answer that doesn't at least heavily involve discussion because that's in fact where a lot of these things come up. It's like somebody's disagreeing with you or you realize in the moment that you're wrong and you have to like check your ego or you have to kind of articulate your reasons for something rather than just table something because that's the Socratic practice. Like all of these deep moral and epistemic standards are like embedded in the discussion process and like it's practice. Like if you're doing it right, it's practice with them. And that's
1: you know, what could be more important mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, I agree. And I think your point about the desert island is interesting, too, because, yeah, I think if you're on a desert island and you are, you know, like you said, running your own experiments and coming up with your own truth, like that's fine. But we are social beings, right, that live in constant collaboration with others. We have to depend on others and we have to create, you know, a shared narrative or a shared truth if we're going to solve problems, because we can't do it all on our own. And that's where I think the discussion can also be really helpful, is in saying, here's what's true to me, here's what's true to you. Okay, there's overlap in the Venn diagram, for lack of a better term, between these two pieces, but there's disagreement here. So how do we work through those? And obviously, the more people you add to that, the more complex it becomes. But that process of sort of merging those truths for lack of a better term, outside of what is objectively true at a sort of first principles level is extremely critical for being a leader, organizing people, convincing people, moving people, groups of people in the direction of of a common goal. And then the last thing I'll say is I think reflection after discussion is really critical. For example, we'll often get students to or encourage teachers to ask students to like reflect, like, did your mind change in this conversation? If so, how? If not, why not? Right in this conversation, were you wrong at any point, and how do you be better next time, or whatever it is, and encourage that metacognitive layer as students reflect back on their own, you know, participation in the discussion and or their own observance
0: and listening. Yeah, I mean, just on that last point, I'd be curious as to how you guys approach this. I've found that it really helps to wait on that issue, like even in myself, like. If I'm like in the moment, if I'm like in a meeting or in a discussion and somebody's challenging me and I'm like sticking to my guns, like it's not impossible for me to be like, yeah, like you're right, I'm wrong, I withdraw my original point. But like often, like, even if I have no particular ego attachment to my idea, it's just like I have to process it. I have this like whole theory and they've raised some new questions for me and we're talking them through, but it's like, like there's a million questions that I have to ask about those questions. And my general experience is that very little, significant mind-changing or cognitive advancement actually happens in discussion ever what does happen is like that you've created a content you're kind of like generating content it's like self-generated content amongst a group of people who are conversing the act of generating it and then the content itself when you're reflecting on it is absolutely seeds for like real cognition and thought i mean that's overstating it like like you are thinking in the seminar but it's like. I want you to reflect like a week later or a month later. It's often very hard to like pin down like, yeah, that conversation like raised the question. I'm not totally sure when it convinced me or changed my mind, but that was the starting point of the path. Yeah, that's a really good point. We don't really have a clear protocol for that in
1: Parlay right now. And sort of full disclosure, we're we're working on designing like a very deliberate post-discussion reflection yeah. activity within the system itself because this is such a valuable thing and so many teachers have asked for it. So It'll be interesting to think about as we go through that process, what's the best amount of time because teachers also have to move on. It's hard because they have to move on, you know, in in the class and the curriculum or whatever. But what is the optimal amount of time? Is it a day? Is it three days, et cetera, where you're going to catch the most number of kids who've actually had time to sort of adequately digest,
0: you know, the ideas that were floating around the conversation. Yeah, I mean it's super hard to turn these things into protocols. I have like mad respect for what you guys are doing. Like protocols that are like embedded in, in software and algorithms. It feels so it's such an art for me. As I said earlier, I've a i have have a hard time kind of articulating and analyzing it. And I, like I don't have an answer as to like, is it three days, is it three hours, is it six days? Like I mm-hmm. you know, I don't know exactly how to approach that. Yeah. Person's different, each conversation's different. <laughs> and I guess you want to build a system that reflects that somehow. Yeah. I feel like I said this three times in this conversation, but again, easy to overstate and easy to understate, like the value of influencing others it is massively valuable to be able to kind of get your ideas out there and to get other people to engage with them and to have them agree or partially agree or have their thinking pushed. I mean, this is how I mean, I'm a philosophy PhD, like I I, and I wouldn't be if I didn't believe that this kind of argument and discussion pushes the world forward but you have to get out there and do it and you have to kind of get people to listen to you and that's its own art. And so the term rhetoric has this bad reputation, mainly from really from Plato's dialogues. It's like the sophists are engaged in mere rhetoric, Um, but it is like, it can be quite rational and and quite important. And and Mm -hmm. I think it's important to kind of highlight that at the same time, or the flip side is, I think one thing that you can learn in a good seminar is when and how to kind of like be like, yeah I just fundamentally disagree, and I have my reasons, and you haven't convinced me, and I haven't convinced you, and we're at an impasse, but like I think that what I'm saying is true, even though I'm kind of standing alone. in some ways, the fact that that happens and not it doesn't happen that infrequently, like it happens mm-hmm. periodically in yeah. discussions. I think it shows that like they do have kind of independent access to arguments in the world, and they are that this isn't a kind of process of social negotiation primarily. But it is that, and to a certain extent, and there's a layer of that. But like, really, this is about like figuring out how to have integrity in this kind of context where like people like people are going to disagree.
1: Yeah, I think that's important. I think listening to the full lecture and understanding the full scope of someone's idea, whether it's a lecture or something they're saying in a discussion, is absolutely critical. Uh, and then I think understanding logical fallacies, broadly speaking, is really critical as well because it's important to have. The high bar, I think. Toby Lutka is the CEO of Shopify, guy I follow, and he has this this term called strong opinions, loosely held, meaning yes. they try to formulate really strong opinions that are grounded in evidence and you know make logical sense and all those things, and that you have a high bar. Like you have to convince me that my arguments or my belief, whatever it is is wrong and that might take a lot because i've thought a lot about this thing i've put a lot of effort into understanding right. this particular topic really clearly and i think that that's an important thing to for kids to student
0: anyone ultimately to learn as well yeah i mean that phrase I, i've had a lot of arguments with people about strong opinions loosely held over the years like i feel like what you just described is strong opinion strongly held which is fine like i don't think there's any problem enough, with that. Like, like strong opinion strongly held doesn't mean that you don't change your mind it means like no like i've there's good reasons for me to believe this and that I can have the courage of my convictions around it. And that's not to say that I won't change my mind, but it's not like you raising this random objection that I've thought about 17 times isn't going to change my mind, you know? So, but yeah, I mean, I like the kind of ethos of like, how I've always interpreted it, the kind of best interpretation that I can give of it is like, even when your opinions aren't that well credentialed in the sense of, look, there's some reason to believe them, but like, you are not sure how much you should believe it. There's a lot of uncertainty around it. Like, it's still strong in the sense of, like, you're willing to act on it. Like, you're willing to kind of, like, you're not just going to be, like, Hedge and, like, Hem and Haw. It's, like, this opinion is still guiding for you, even Mm -hmm. as you are, like, gathering evidence. And I don't know if that's something that you want to discuss or not, but it's a really difficult thing to do. And it's one of the things that distinguishes like good scientists and entrepreneurs, this kind of like bi- biased action in the face of uncertainty. Um, yeah,
1: I think so too. And actually one of the things that I struggle with as an entrepreneur and making decisions and formulating arguments and building plans, you know, for moving forward in the future is what role does intuition play? Right. Even like, I know that this is probably the right direction to go, even though I don't have the words, even though I don't necessarily have all of the, you know, the clear articulated arguments and detailed evidence. Like I, I just feel like some synthesis of all the knowledge that I have, of all the experience that I have, is pointing me in this direction, even if I can't, you know, lay it out in some tree. And so I struggle personally with, with that because I find that I can convince myself in and out of anything sometimes. And confirmation bias is a real double because we do that, you know. So I'm
0: just – it's something that I personally struggle with. So Yeah. And if you think about this in the in the context of discussions, this kind of thing does come up in discussions quite a bit, like where you'll have a student that's like, I don't really know how to argue against what you're saying, but you haven't really convinced me. And they can kind of like, it's it's not just like total intuition. They can kind of like gesture to certain things and they say that they want to think about it more. But it's like, how do you deal with that, mm-hmm. right? Like, how do you deal with that in a discussion or in a context where it's like, like, is that just your gut? Are you just relying on feeling? You can just rely on feel. Like, it's, it's not like that, that's impossible. Like, sometimes people do just like, like, this makes me uncomfortable and therefore I'm not going to consider it. Is that what's going on? Or is it like more epistemic than that, more cognitive, but still at a kind of earlier stage and that's why you can't surface it? Like, it's that's kind right. of like almost like pre discussion context. And like being able to like noodle those things out and apart and together again is like so, I mean, it's so sophisticated. But it, it's just, I also find it's like, I've had pretty few that's not true. I mean, I went to grad school in philosophy, so there were a lot of people that I knew that could do this, but it's it's not that easy to find. It's not that easy to find teachers who can do this, which just gets back to like what you're doing in terms of like, how do you take this incredibly complex, you know, we're teaching like integrity in the context of a civilization working together to trying to discover the truth and butting heads all the time and codify that Mm -hmm. into a set of practices. I mean, do you have things in the platform that are around kind of like integrity and willingness to accept criticism and that kind of thing
1: yeah for sure we do so it's really hard to do obviously and the real challenges one of the challenges for us is there are different people at different levels and some of these things might need to be codified you know as students are going through their master's or their phd in philosophy and other times at some fundamental level in middle school the goal is just to get the kids talking to get them to to at least start formulating an argument so there's different, you know. We see parlay in some way as, as like kind of like training wheels. Where if we do our job correctly, by the end of a year or two years or a high school experience using parlay, students don't need it anymore. We see ourselves just laying the foundation for a lot of this stuff. But as they move on beyond parlay into you know higher education, hopefully these you know a lot of these practices are ingrained. And so to answer your question, in the live roundtable, for example, which is our sort of verbal Socratic seminar activity and parlay, when students want to participate, they quote unquote tap in. And when they tap in, they tap in in one of four ways. They're either introducing a new idea, which is akin to like answering a question or bringing up a new concept. They are building on an idea. So they're explicitly going to build on or extend the thinking of you know another one of their classmates. They're going to challenge an idea, which is obviously to challenge or to disagree, or they're going to ask a question to move the conversation forward in perhaps a different direction. And then when they do that, the act of tapping and saying, I want to challenge so-and-so, it creates some intentionality around that. So it kind of is that first step nudge forward in the direction towards constructive disagreement. And then associated with that, we have a number of sentence stems that we have sort of default ones and teachers can also configure their own depending on the nature of the conversation or the kinds of disagreements or building on or new ideas that they want students to learn. And then so they have a little notepad that they can type their notes in and sort of refer back to as they're participating. They have the tap in and then they have the sentence stems. All of this is configurable. So the goal with all of that is to teach some of the the fundamentals uh, and give students, you know, some guides to, you know, I disagree with your point about X because Y and I have evidence from Z passage to prove that or something like that. So you give them some of those sort of frames for lack of a better term to build those those fundamental skills and then i would argue that some of the metacognitive self-awareness kind of things come from that process
0: and doing that process properly that's just one example yeah that's really interesting I mean, this is an incredibly hard thing to do. So if this is like in the future, you're not trying to do this. That's not like a damning. I'm not like asking like, can, but can you do this? I'm just curious. Like, yeah, yeah for I sure. mean, you do, I think with pretty much everything, like challenging somebody, building on an idea, yeah. like you can take kind of any move in a discussion, just like you can take any move in a thought process. And there's more and less, there's kind of like higher and lower integrity versions of that move. Yes. You know, like there's there's like, you're challenging, but like, you're challenging from a place of being like, you know, an obnoxious Socratic gadfly who's getting attention, or to kind of use use that caricature of Socrates. Or are you challenging yeah. from the place of like, you see the aim of the argument, and you're not sure that it gets there, and you're like honestly curious what the person would say? You know, I mean, you could kind of like iterate that kind of motive question for, for anything. Like, is that something that like you could handle on reflection, or that you could train the teachers on with the tool? That kind of distinction.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good one. I mean, in short, it's not something that's really turst out that you know, in that much detail in parlay right now, I think depending on the sentence stems that you use for kids to introduce disagreement, you could probably like, I see your point about blank, however, blank, like there's things that you can do that kind of lead them in that direction. But sort of the the purity of the intention, if you will, is probably something that I think the teacher would would need to learn to differentiate between those
0: two things. Do you know these nonviolent communication practices where instead of being like, you're wrong, like you're like, this makes me feel like you kind of put it, phrase it as an I statement. Mm. Interesting. I think it's a kind of example of what you're saying. It's like, can you kind of have a sentence structure that like pushes you in the right direction. And I actually think that the NVC approach does push you in a, in a good direction. But it's like a friend of mine when they when she heard NVC was like, I feel like you're totally wrong and being an idiot. <laughs> like like I mean yeah. you, like you, like you can always yeah. kind of like recurse to like you know not getting it, not kind of like addressing the issue in the in the epistemically healthy way. Yeah, I, uh, I think like again in
1: parlay, one of the things teachers do is they can set criteria. Now these can be assessment criteria, or they can be kind of like in the Harkness table, right where. We're looking for use of evidence. We're looking for or and if we calculate, you know, you used evidence three times. That's a good thing. Maybe one of those tallies is ad hominem attacks. And the kid says, I feel like you're an idiot. Well, then that's, you know, that's you get docked a point or you get a, you get, you know, tagged for, you know, using an ad hominem attack or straw manning someone else's argument. And then the teacher might stop the discussion at that point. They'd have to know what a straw man is. And how to identify it, they stop the discussion at that point and articulate why that's not a, a fair characterization of Johnny's argument or whatever it is. Yeah. Yep. So I i think that that requires you, know, you could put that in the system, and then if it's in the system and it's there and it's and it's top of mind, then there is obviously training that needs to go along with that. But you know, there are things like that you can do for
0: sure. Yep. Yep. This has been absolutely great, and I have some questions that I want to ask you about, like your strategy, um, your startup strategy, which are a little bit outside of the scope of philosophy of education. I'm just curious. Sure. But before I do that, I just I just wanted to take a breath and take a sip of water and see if anybody from the audience wanted to chime in. So at this point, if you want to, I mean, you should, this is generally true, but if you want to ask some something, come up to the stage, make a comment, share a story, raise your hand. So feel free to chime in and ask a question of myself or Bobby on the topic of discussions or anything else that we've been talking about what is your strategy with Parlay? Are you selling to schools? Are you selling to teachers? Like like what is your go-to-market strategy? Both
1: is the short answer. So we have a content library called the Parlay Universe. And so that's like thousands of discussion topics that are created by us and by teachers in the community, by partners that we work with. And as it stands now, all of those are free. So we have like this huge universe library of free discussion topics which teacher can publish into an online roundtable. Just one of our discussion protocols in parlay. And then they have up to 12 round tables that they can use at current. And after that, they can buy an individual teacher license. That represents about 10 to 15% of our revenue. And then the bulk of it, 85% or so, comes from schools, whether that's a department buying a teacher five pack or a district buying a district-wide you know, access to parlay for all teachers
0: and students. So yeah, that's that's a bit of the breakdown. And this is a tool that you can use. This isn't just a tool for kind of like virtual online learning. You can use this in a classroom. Both, yeah. In short, both of the
1: two current discussion protocols can be used in in both online and remote. And as we build new ones that that will remain – or online and in-class. And as we build new ones, that will remain true. We want it to
0: sort of transition seamlessly between all learning environments. And what do you think of as like – what is your market for like kind of blue sky? Like is Mm -hmm. this something that gets used in like, you know – 90% 90% of like schools or like middle schools and high schools or like 50% of freshman u- university classes or like, I mean, what, like, what do you see as your kind of reach in terms of how many people are using this tool? How many schools are using this tool? Or, like who's going to find value in it?
1: Yeah. So I think, and as it stands today, about 75% of our users are teachers. That is teach English social studies, humanities more broadly. So in that and most, about 70% of them are high school and the rest are mostly middle school, but like I said, some, some higher ed, some elementary. I mean, in a perfect world, parlay exists in every single classroom, high school and middle school classroom in every single school. Now, the distribution of that will probably be more social studies and English than math and science or some of the other subjects, which is fine, but ultimately every single student takes The humanities and takes English all the way through to the end of grade twelve. So, and then in terms of the the amount that it's used, again, that depends on the class, but probably a couple times per week or a couple times per month would be the typical teacher using parlay. But as we build more different kinds of you know learning activities and discussion protocols into it, then we're confident that it'll be sort of teachers will find more in different ways because most you know want to differentiate the learning experience. You have discussion one week and then. Next week you might do something different. So
0: every high school English classroom has this in their room. It's this like tech tool, and it's loaded with like if you're reading I don't know the grapes of wrath or whatever, or studying the war of Texan independence. Like you can go to this tool, and it, it can be like you know like just starting to read the grapes of wrath. Like what chapter are you on here? Are, like like get two people together. Here are a few excellent topics, and it kind of leads. like is it like a kind of like a tool that people can kind of use you know, as needed, just like a resource yes. in the classroom. Yeah.
1: Yes. So at current, yes. So you can go and you can go to, you know, the literature collections and you'll find one for every chapter of Datsby or Graves of Wrath or whatever. Longer term, the way that we've envisioned Parlay in its current form and, and going into the future is you, we believe that you can and will be able to, to architect an entire course, an entire course around exclusively the Parlay experience that would mimic basically what you would find in a, in a liberal arts education. But the lectures might be prerecorded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that, that is the idea in a bigger sense. And then we would we plan to ultimately build full courses or entire units where one parlay activity leads into the next, leads into the next, and they're all scoped and sequenced with a very sort of clear cadence of contents and knowledge and the requisite questions are asked in an appropriate manner that's ultimately driving to, you know, certain, I don't want to say conclusions, but certain, certain yep, goals yep. in the learning environment. So that's sort of like the, the next phase for us, but it was really critical to build a tool for teachers yep. to just use as they need to mix it into the cadence of all the other things they're doing with all the other tech tools, so obviously, you know, low tech, the environment, lectures, all that kind of stuff. So ultimately we see
2: both. Awesome. Awesome. We have Mohammed here. Hi, Mohammed. Hello. It makes sense that most of your customers are in the humanities. What thinking have you done about what Parlay could look like in science classes, particularly the more mathematical ones, where it seems like all the students are doing are just learning the right answers that have been solved several hundred years ago? What does discussion look like in those contexts? It's a good
1: question. I'll be the first to admit that I don't have all the answers to that question yet. One of the things that we've seen, kinda of like what I was talking about in my grade seven science classroom, is depending on what level you get to, I think as you get more advanced in science, these become these kinds of conversations maybe become a little less interesting or rigorous, but how can we bring in some things that are going on in the real world or other disciplines and connect them to what we're learning in the science classroom, like the trolley car problem and, you know, AI with respect to, you know, self-driving cars and that kind of stuff. So that's one way to do it. I think another way that we've seen teachers succeed is in designing experiments or when students are, when students are designing experiments or they'll, or they'll write, for example, into an online round table, they might write their methodology out or what their planned methodology might be and then have classmates sort of give feedback and ask questions about that. So that sort of peer review process to the degree that, you know, students are ready for that is something that can also be done through discussion. So those are
0: two that sort of come to mind, but yeah. yeah, I'm sure there are many more. Yeah, I mean, the thing that comes to my mind is this isn't always the case. So it really, when I, in the seminars that I run, this is actually fairly minimal, but in a lot of good discussions, particularly literature discussions, but also other humanities discussions... The thing that serves as evidence for the discussion is the text. So there's this artifact that everybody has, that everybody's read, and that everybody understands. Like, this is what you're debating, or this is what you're discussing, or this is what you're trying to understand. Um, this is the clearest in, the, in, in literature. It's like, you're trying to understand this world, this fictional world, and that all of the evidence about this world comes from this book in front of us. And so we can all refer to it and that drives the discussion that drives the debate that drives questions about like what characters motivations are what the themes are or what's going to happen next or of relate or that drives a lot of the literature discussion so the, i think that the i mean in science the evidence is not the text i mean it can be in a, in a kind of indirect way you could you could have a reading group around the origin of species and, and kind of through that there's all sorts of ways you could make that actually really interesting but typically in a science class like if you if you're learning something like inverse square laws or laws of definite proportion and how that relates to atomic theory like there's going to be some body of evidence either directly that you're working with an experiment or indirectly that you're like seeing described or seeing a video of and that seems like it should be it should play a certain kind of
2: role in discussion i haven't run that many science discussions so i mean what do you think mohammed i mean i'm just contrasting to the way i learned science which there wasn't too many discussions, what there was was a teacher going through content and and solving problems on the board. And to the extent there was discussions, it was like, "Why did you do this mathematical operation? It was the experiment stuff makes sense. like that that's where I would think of discussions coming in. I, I was just wondering if maybe like we have the science education all wrong because I do a lot of philosophy seminars and I love discussions there. So maybe I, I feel like I've missed out on something equally enjoyable.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's like a whole movement. So just take math. There's like a whole pedagogy around like number talks and math discussions and making making math kind of more similar like and doing math in school like more like real mathematicians do where you're like positing thing, you know, positing things and you have like scolia and theorems and definitions and you're batting them around and you're all going up for the board and you name things after one another. and Like, like it kind of, I mean, I don't think it's like a Socratic or a hardness exactly, but it, it does add A kind of social element in a way that's good that a a social element that's epistemic and that's motivating and that drives students towards kind of better thinking and better answers you know joel bowler has written a lot about this um, and then she has her critics and and there's kind of different versions of this and then in the sciences i mean bobby you know i mean i know that saint john's does a ton on kind of science seminars that work like this that are more focused on like Reading the great books and kind of having having discussions around those. where the great books might include, like the Principia, right? but I have less of a sense of what the literature there says. Yeah, I'd be I'd
1: be lying if I said I knew it well either. But on the, on the subject of math and and sort of just the the way that some teachers who use parlay in the science or math classroom do it is in our online roundtable, it's it's kind of just like a, a sexier discussion thread. And so the teacher will put forward a question, and it may be like. Here is the question. Now everyone try and answer it once, and then each student has to go submit a unique response before they see other people's responses. And then everyone gets secret identities, so you know it's okay if you if it's not right. For example, it's more about like the thinking. And then the guiding questions that you have to answer as you go through and read through your peers' submissions would be, you know, helping them maybe improve their solution or improve their answer or you know think through it differently. Sometimes teachers will also do things like ask the students to create a question to help understand X, Y, Z. So they sort of reverse the role and the student becomes the teacher. And then the job is to each for each student to architect their own question. And then they can go and give each other feedback on that. So it, it creates a little bit more of that sort of inverting the process where it's not just strictly answering answering the question, but creating the question. So I don't know if Annalisa is still here, if she is. I'm sure she's has has some other Indiana. ways that teachers have, have used it. We can maybe bring yeah, her Annalisa. in. Sorry to put you on the spot, Annalisa. I know it's
0: yeah. 1030 here, so. <laughs> I'll bring her up if she raises her hand, but otherwise we can wait for her a while. Oh, I might just cool. hear in the audience. Annalisa is your, is your colleague, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. So this has been a great discussion, Bobby. I mean, I thought that our discussions at a, at a ASU-GSV were good, but I thought that this one was even better. So cool. thank you so much for coming No, Thank up. you. Yeah, yeah. And this is recorded, all these are recorded, and at some point in the next few weeks we will start releasing these. We probably have like ten or fifteen of these conversations at this point as a podcast. And I'll shoot you the link, Bobby. And how can people find you or get in touch with you? Is it parlayideas.com?
1: That's it. It's parlayideas.com and then Twitter is at
0: parlayideas. There's also Facebook and LinkedIn, but we're more active on, on Twitter, I would say. Awesome. So yeah, thanks a lot for the discussion and we should definitely figure out a way to continue the conversation, Bobby. Of course. Thanks, Matt. I would love that. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in.